Welcome back, everyone. We're Simply Bitcoin. We break down the news from Twitter, the daily fail, meme review, software releases, hardware releases, and the websites by plebs. Joining us today, very special guest, the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. I'm talking about fellow Bitcoiner Vijay Boyapati. We are diving into the numbers, though, before he joins us for the fun. Number time is brought to you by Bitcoin 2022. It's going to be the largest Bitcoin conference ever hosted in sunny, sunny Miami Beach, Florida. You got Chad Saylor going. You got Naim Bukele. He's going to make an announcement. Maybe he's going to go absolutely bonkers. Phil and I are going to speak. It's going to be crazy. And you can take advantage of the link down below for 10% off your tickets to Bitcoin 2022. At the time of this recording, the block height is 720,229. The Bitcoin price, 36,850. Chain rewrite days, 734. Total public lightning capacity, 3,352.68. Moscow time, 2710. Blocks to the halving, 119,771. The numbers. The numbers. Very interesting stuff. Phil, I actually have... Are they? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying that in a positive light, but I actually have something really interesting to talk about, and it is number related. And I'm sure you guys have seen it on Twitter. It's all these solo miners, and this is the third one, right? Uh, this was Doctor Khan Kalivas, and he says, "Congratulations to another miner with approximately 86 terahashes solving a solo block on solocpool.org." There are a lot of miners now on the solo pool, and if enough people are mining solos, someone will eventually be the lucky one as here. That's essentially like winning the lottery. I don't, I do not recommend that. But anyways, he says, note this miner has been varying the amount of hash rate they were mining solo with, and at the time they solved it only had 8.3 ter. That's absolutely wild. Uh, to be clear, this is not a sentinel event. There is nothing wrong with proof of work. Bitcoin is not broken. My, mine, my solo mining service doesn't have a backdoor to solve blocks faster. With enough miners mining, someone eventually solves a block, and it could be a miner of any size. At the time this block was solved, the pool had mined approximately 26% of the hashes that an average block takes to mine, which means there was about a 1 in 5 chance that should have solved a block by now, and it's now an exponential function that, sol that approaches 100%. So, And then apparently the guy replied, uh to being it to being the lottery winner he said holy s just waking up and seeing that my gecko science compact f no way i know that's what killed me oh on this one I'm like, my Are you god me? <laughs> <laughs> okay anyways that's unbelievable right um the omen has nine of these little compact f guys running on it holy s ck thank you for running your pool i need coffee uh, wow uh lucky lucky winner chicken dinner whatever the saying is but that's absolutely wild um i, I was suspicious at first you know what made me suspicious is the fact that it's relatively small amount of hash rate right like i think last uh last week it was like the equivalent of like one s19 or a couple s9s that's less than an s9 <laughs> and those little things and what what's uh what's the block is 6.25 so what is that Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Off the top of my head, I might be completely wrong. Right. It's a little bit less today <laughs> for that tiny little computer. I don't know, man. That's a hell of a lottery. VJ, Still amazing. What do, you, what do you think about that? I mean, listen. Statistically, anything's possible in a long enough time frame, right? But still, but still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I think you described it perfectly, Nico. It's like winning the lottery, uh, and. It, it's the thing I find interesting about this, and I, I didn't realize people were doing this. They were just running very uh, low hash power setups without being in a pool. Uh, the reason there's this very, very strong tendency towards the creation of pools is that it really flattens out the reward distribution. It's way less volatile. You don't have to wait, say, two or three years before you get a block reward. And maybe... You don't get a block reward, you get unlucky. And, you know, given your hash power, you could expect to get a block reward every two or three years, but you end up getting one every eight or 10 years. And that's devastating. So um, it's it's one of the interesting sort of dynamics of the Bitcoin system is that there's this really strong tendency towards the creation of pools, just so that you can expect when you expend energy, you get something back. Uh 
and it's something that people are worried about a lot, right? Because do these pools have too much power? What if, you know, there was back in, I think, 2015 or 16, there were some pools which had close to 50% of the hash power and people were like, well, they could double spend the network. And, you know, that, that that's kind of a, there's a lot of subtlety to that because the pools don't necessarily control the underlying miners. And if the pools behave badly, the miners would be like, oh, I'm out of here. So it's, it's more subtle than that. But the tendency towards pooling is an interesting dynamic that may not have been fully appreciated in the early years when Satoshi was writing about mining. I don't know if everyone really figured out that, oh, there are going to be ASICs and there are going to be pools and it's all going to be in China and then it's not all going to be in China. Like the mining market is fascinating. Um, it's not something I'm an expert in. I, I talk more about the economics, but man, and, and stories like this just make it even more interesting. Like imagine waking up and you're like, I just got six Bitcoin. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> and and actually, I just I just want to I just want to point out, uh, you know, to to Vijay's point, right, uh, about these pools. Um, I, I think that people, a lot of people, may not realize how easy it is to simply sign up and point your miner to a different pool. Uh, it, it's really not a, a big deal. It, it's not a complex procedure by any expanse of the imagination. So, yeah, you know, like these it's like I, switching I, I, search engine or something, right? You yeah. just like you just switch and you go to a new URL and if you don't want to use Google, you can use Bing or you can use whatever DuckDuckGo. Same thing. Exactly. What I, what I find suspicious is that last week, right, there was a couple winners too and mm -hmm. they had relatively a small amount of hash rate. And if this was, you know, a thing that has been happening for a while, the winners wouldn't be so concentrated. Right in a short, I mean, they could theoretically, but probably they would not. Right, so I'm looking at this. I'm like, there's something more to this story because one makes sense. Right, two, it's a stretch. Three, you're starting to. It's not technically, it's not impossible, but statistically, it's relatively impossible, and it's just it, it doesn't make sense. Right. Because it, it would make sense if, like, okay, once every couple of months, here and there, here and that. Um, and someone actually went over the odds last week, and it was, like, the probability that miners with this amount, this small amount of hash rate to win um, in the same week is, like, one in a billion. So in the same two weeks, three guys? I, I think there's more to this story. That's just, that's just my take. You know what? I think this can get solved by magical thinking, right? When you have when you have two events, you're guaranteed to have a third. It's like an old saying that like my mother would say. There you go. So those two guaranteed that we were going to have a third in such a short time span. No, in in all in all seriousness though, do we really understand the probability of no. you know how that can happen? Like I mean we we I mean I know I don't, so I'm not even going to pretend to. So, but I I, I really. At what point? Let me ask you guys this. At what point do do we start to do we start to think that something's up, right? Because because obviously people want to bring up that. Like I mean, I saw that point right in in the tweet thread. You know, like pe people want, you know, for for lack of a better term, it's like some people want the drama. You know, like like they they want to pretend like oh this means something. But at what point where do we do we decide at a psychological level that this means something? You know, like four of them, five of them. I don't know, but but exactly what VJ said, right? Just because you have, it's like lottery winners, right? There's a lottery winner. You're like, okay, I'm gonna win the lottery. Let me play the lottery. Um, it's extremely low. I mean, never say never, but it's extremely low that you're gonna win this, and you're probably gonna spend a lot more money and electricity, a lot more time trying to win the ticket than you know than actually. You being the lucky one, the winner, winner, chicken dinner. But anyways, Phil, it's time for The Daily Fail. The Daily Fail is brought to you by Amber App. Check them out. It is a Bitcoin stacking app. That's right. You can stack sats. And this is by actual Bitcoiners. The link is down below. Amber, the smart way to stack sats. All right, guys, we showed this. We actually showed uh, this tweet as part of the fail on episode... I think it was episode 412 or 411. Okay, I'll have to uh, actually it's added in the show notes. Okay, now the reason why I'm explaining this is because of this. This tweet came out of the World Economic Forum, as we recall, 
right? We showed the, uh, the connection between block geeks and Ethereum, right? We can see right over here, you know, the, the Ethereum logo indicating quote unquote proof of stake, which as, you know, as Guy pointed out so kindly, it's not even a proof of stake system. It's a proof of work system. So they're not even, they're not even on the ball. They're not even standing on the field. But anyways, this fail is not about this tweet, okay? We're going to pull together some strings and we are going to show some really creepy stuff between the World Economic Forum and stakeholder capitalism and this garbage. And why Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is going to save us from this nonsense. But anyways, before we get into that, we're going to show a video. OK, it's a Glenn Beck video where he's talking about ESG. Okay, and he's talking about essentially what ESG is. And yes, the ESG narrative fits into all of this. Okay, I put out a tweet this morning that talked about, I got my dates wrong, but essentially in 1971, the World Economic Forum, the Bretton Woods Agreement, and, and this stakeholder capitalism paper were all released, which is very interesting. And we're going to obviously show the receipts for that. But anyways, let's first dive into this video about ESG from Glenn Beck. It's Jordan Peterson that retweeted it. Environmental, energy, water, land. How much land do you have? Are you dedicating that to a preserve? How about water? What's your water usage? What's your energy usage? Are you using renewables? How many cars do you have? How much gas do you use? Environmental, E. That score will go down. If you don't have a house that has solar panels, if you're a company that engages at all with dirty fuels, social justice, how woke are you? Have you told your people to be less white? Are you anti-police? Is it okay to... You know okay. what the worst part about this, bro, is that like, yes. it sounds like a fucking conspiracy theory. That's, it sounds like a goddamn conspiracy theory when you're reading this, but when you actually like look into it... Um, Man, there's just there's a lot of things to be alarmed about. That's all I got to say. All right, we're just going to play this last little piece for a couple of seconds, okay, before we move on, because this is really the piece that we want to focus on. It's this stakeholder capitalism, which, by the way, is all of a sudden this vocabulary term that every that that all that is showing up all over the place. But it's it's misleading. Okay, it's very misleading. And we're going to show where it comes from. Business. How many women do you employ? How many minorities? Who's on the board of directors? Here's the great thing. When it comes to stakeholder capitalism, it's not shareholder. It's not you. It's the stakeholders. It ah, the stakeholders. So let's learn together. Here we go. Stakeholder capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism is a system in which corporations are oriented to serve the interests of all their stakeholders. Among the key stakeholders are customers, suppliers, employees, shareholders, and local communities. Under this system, a company's purpose is to create long-term value and not to maximize profit and enhance shareholder value at the cost of other stakeholder groups. Sounds like wealth redistribution. Just saying. It's kind of what it sounds like. But anyways, I digress. Let's continue on these points, right? So stakeholder capitalism, very hot topic all of a sudden, but it's very old. And as I start, as I stated at the beginning of this, right, there's a there, there's kind of a tie between this particular term and the World Economic Forum being created and the Bretton Woods Agreement. Because for some reason, for some odd reason, the World Economic Forum was founded 24th of January, 1971. It doesn't really make a difference what, I, I guess, what the date is, but it's just strange that it all happened the same year, right? August 15th, 1971, President Richard Nixon announced the new economic policy, a program to create a new prosperity without war, which was, as we know, the Bretton Woods Agreement was dismantled. And all of a sudden, the foreign currencies that were fixed in relation to the U.S. dollar and the value was expressed in gold was no longer the case. Now, all of a sudden, it's not backed by gold anymore. That happened in 1971 also. But what also happened in 1971 is, I guess, a young aspiring, young aspiring engineer, right? Wrote a book. But that book, who, that who, book came... Who, no, no, well, it's, it's Klaus Schwab. It's Klaus Schwab. <laughs> but... 
But that wasn't, that's not the book that we're going to take a look at right now. Okay. First, we're going to take a look at this one The Stakeholder Capitalism, a global economy that works for progress, people, and the planet. Okay. Our global economic system is broken, but we can replace the current picture of global upheaval, unsustainability, and uncertainty with one of an economic of an economy that works for all people and the planet. First, we must eliminate rising income inequality within societies where productivity and wage growth has slowed. Second, we must reduce the dampening effect of monopoly market power wielded by large corporations on innovation and productivity gains. That's the, that's the signal in that little piece. And finally, the short-sighted exploitation of natural resources that is corroding the environment and affecting the lives of many for the worse must end. That's right. We're all incompetent and we need the nanny state to take care of all of these resources for us. Okay? Doesn't matter that they're part of the organizations that actually put the rules in place that allowed these corporations to create all of these situations. That doesn't matter. They're going to fix this now that they broke it. Okay. Anyways, the tenets of this book, individual agency, how countries and policies can make a difference against large external forces, creating the, um, the narrative of an us versus them. That always helps to solidify groups and get people to, you know, group think a little bit easier. A clearly defined social contract. Agreement on shared values and goals allows government, businesses, and individuals to produce the most optimal outcomes. Sure. Planning for future generations. Short-sighted presentism harms our shared future and that of those yet to be born. You'll notice that Obviously, there isn't very much detail around these because it's all open-ended as to what's actually going to be done. And then the better measures of economic success, moving beyond the myopic focus on GDP to more complete human-scaled measures of societal flourishing. Okay, so this is a very key part right here, which goes back to what we were talking about with the World Economic Forum and the Bretton Woods Agreement being dismantled. Klaus Schwab who is the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, okay, first introduced the stakeholder concept, okay? In his book, in 1971, Modern Enterprise Management in Mechanical Engineering, and has been an advocate of stakeholder capitalism ever since. The co-author of the book, of this current book, is the head chairman, he's the head of chairman's communications at the world economic forum so obviously their incentives are aligned okay so just to finish this up i was able to dig up this this document from from 1971 which was nicely converted into a pdf and is actually on the world economic forum <laughs> website um the modern company management in mechanical engineering Okay, now I'm not even going to pretend to understand anything about mechanical engineering. Okay, but these charts I have seen in many management meetings. Okay, and this essentially, this essentially outlines how a corporation remains profitable. Okay, now what I don't understand is why this person and why any group has decided that this individual should somehow be in charge of the productivity and the value retention and creation and transmission of the world. Bitcoin solves all of these problems. Everything that I just went through, all of these things that happened, right? These are people problems. These are people that created these problems. Bitcoin was created to take this responsibility out of the hands of people. We are obviously incompetent and control freaks, okay? And we're also power hungry. So naturally, we can't have this type of power. And now all of a sudden, this individual and this group is going to tell the world how it should run and why? This is very scary stuff. So keep in mind, this person wrote the book in 1970, okay? And is now, is now going and essentially putting forth this plan of stakeholder capitalism. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's entirely tinfoil hat. Man. This guy's freaking me out, man. Look, <laughs> so. I, 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 you know, when I, when I first started hearing about the world economic forum and all that stuff, I was like, this is just, this is 
BS. You know, this is just cons- online conspiracy. And then you, you saw world government's reaction to, you know, the sickness that's happening and just it's this coordinated effort and you know you started digging and you started doing more research and you know there's a lot of good uh you know sources and they you know they start to uncover and they start to do digging and then you start connecting the dots and then it starts to become obvious but i think that the the part that you said i think that all this concentrated power in the hands of central planners i think it's the result of the Cantillian effect, right? It's the result of essentially these giant uh, bureaucracies having the power of the money printer. And we all know, right, when they print, when the government prints money, it's essentially a redistribution of wealth from the lower and middle class back to the state and back to the wealthy, right? So, you know, I think that the World Economic Forum, it's not that necessarily these people are like twirling their mustaches and they're just super evil. I think it's just the result of just 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 how fiat money is architected right it's just and these people are protecting their like they're just working on their incentives right and then you're kind of seeing this from an outside perspective and you're like those people must be evil so i think that you know i think that this whole system where it's just just giant you know group of elites i think that it was created by the fiat system and i think that you're absolutely right i think bitcoin fixes this i think bitcoin protects you from the central planners Right. Um, but man, I wish you picked another topic for VJ today because he must think we're absolutely crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, uh, VJ, do you, I mean, look, you, I'm sure you see some stuff. Uh, do you, first of all, do you agree with Phil's points? Uh, do you think he's absolutely insane? Do you think Bitcoiners are reading too much into the whole world economic narrative? Um, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, both could be true, right? Phil could be insane and what he's saying could be true. <laughs> um, it's a really, really deep topic and it's an important one. I, I guess I would, what I would like to contribute maybe is a little bit of historical context, which is I think this is just Marxism metastasized. Um, Marxism uh, was the, the dominant and popular intellectual ideology in the 1920s and 1930s. You had a lot of very famous intellectuals in the United States saying we need to get America out of this horrendous capitalist system and go to go to Marxism. And, and they were looking with starry eyes at the Soviet Union and saying, look at this great success that they have in the Soviet Union. It really took a long time, 50 years, and you know, the, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, I think, was a, a defining moment when most of the world sort of came to terms with the fact that uh, communism was a massive economic failure. There were a lot of people in the United States who thought it was a huge success in the 30s. And it was only at the end that they realized that Russia was a third, uh, sorry, the Soviet Union was a third world nation with nukes. It was only powerful because it had nuclear weapons. It wasn't economically powerful. And so, so what's happened is, uh, Marxism has been largely discredited. The idea of central planning, um, which most people today don't really think about, they think more about redistribution. You know, the rich have too much money, we need to tax them and give it to other people to make sure that they're, they're doing okay. So the, the idea, the stronger form of socialism is communism, and that has been rejected. And so what I think is happening is you're seeing a metastasization of uh, Marxism into this newer form, which is like these people don't like capitalism. They don't understand capitalism. They don't understand how it produces um, value for the greatest number of people. Just naturally, they think that there needs to be someone outside fixing it. That it's a flawed system. It needs to be fixed. But because Marxism was discredited, they've moved on to these other kind of less... Um, uh, I guess, centrally planned ideologies where they're like, okay, we we kind of think capitalism does something good, but we can't, we still can't trust it. So we've got to change it somehow. And, and that's what it really feels like to me is is that they, they are trying to co-opt capitalism and change it in a way that doesn't involve central planning, but has their input. Um, and, And I think it's just as misguided. It's going to be, uh, discredited, again in the future at some point in the future where people will realize that that's not going to work you just have to let the market work the market has this way 
of producing the greatest benefit to the greatest number. Because if you're a company building something, if you don't service the desires of your customers, you go out of business. That's how, how capitalism works. It's a profit system, yes, which is what all these people hate. They hate the profits. Profits are bad. But it's also a loss system, profit and loss. And losses are just as important in capitalism because they clear out people who are not servicing the market and servicing customers. And that's why it's such a great system that has produced more wealth than any other system in the history of the world and why we need it. And, it, it, you know, as someone who grew up uh, as a kid in the 80s, these ideas were really kind of big in my mind and, and in the social consciousness. I feel like people growing up today, they didn't see the Berlin Wall come down that it wasn't as big an impact, the fall of the Soviet Union and what that meant and the implications for the economic policies of Marxism, all of that's kind of been forgotten. And it, it really, it worries me when I think about millennials who have been growing up in the last 20 or 30 years, who just don't have that context. Uh, and, and, and now sort of coming back and saying, oh, maybe these ideas are good. I, I live in a city in, in America, Seattle, which has rampant, socialism in the population um there's a member of our city council who's openly socialist and i find it really depressing just from personal history my parents left india because india was a country with a billion people that ran an, a socialist economic policy and anyone with any kind of talent had no opportunities the only thing that they could do was escape the country and so my family escaped and i, I just see those ideas reinfecting countries around the world and it really it worries me a lot and that's you know to get back to what we all care about that's why i i'm so excited about bitcoin is that even if you have these governments trying to force marxism or a new form of marxism onto us we have the the ability to escape now uh and, and bitcoin is the ultimate escape hatch absolutely um so i'm gonna reference and i completely agree with you um I come from Venezuela myself, right? And I happen to be a millennial. So I'm coming here and I'm seeing kids my age and I'm just like, what the F are you doing? But at the same time, I empathize with them. And the reason I empathize with them is because they had less opportunity than their parents. So they think, I think inherently they know something is wrong. They know something is unjust. But what they get wrong is that they think it's the economic system that's broken when in reality, it's the money that's broken. It's the money that's been stealing from you. I absolutely agree. I think Bitcoin is a solution to that. I'm going to reference the preface to the sovereign individual where Peter Thiel makes an argument that the future of, you know, the future of the world is essentially, you know, the AI of China that, you know, could theoretically solve um, the distri the distribution problem that, you know, communism has, right? A free market is always going to be more efficient at, uh, at capital allocation than, you know, central planners, right? And I think that's why it wins. But Peter Thiel is making the argument that AI potentially could solve that problem. And he says that the West, the future of the West is individualistic by nature. And he says crypto, but we all know it really means Bitcoin because that's the only uncorruptible money, in my opinion, because it's the only truly decentralized cryptocurrency. So what were your thoughts and what would your response be to that? To, to Peter Thiel's point that do you, uh, do you agree that AI could potentially, you know, change that? Do you, do you think that it could solve uh, the, you know, the main problem with communism is that, you know, these central planners are never going to be as efficient as the free market? Right. I think the, the problem with AI is it's not going to lead. Some people have this very positive vision that it's going to lead to a singularity where you have these machines that become intelligent and they produce everything that we need and we don't need to work anymore. I, I think that's very naive. I think we are so far away from any kind of real intelligence. I think what AI will be used for, however, is um, technologies like image recognition, which is sort of from a computer science perspective are optimization problems something that's really complex that you kind of have to optimize and there are a lot of variables and you have to figure out the right value for the variables to do it really well chess is an example image recognition is an example some of robotics you know that those are the kind of areas that you could see ai really help the, the problem with i see with ai is it's going to be used for surveillance 
that is the scariest thing is that and, and china is the one that's um really pioneering this so when when i see china pioneering something i think that's something we don't want to do uh, they're, they're the ones pioneering cbdc's central bank digital currencies again for surveillance what they want is a society where they know everything that everyone is doing all the time and you can do that with artificial intelligence you can have cameras everywhere and the cameras can recognize people's faces and sort of track where you've been going what you've been doing connect that to your financial records uh through the cbdc which is controlled by the central bank uh so you, you know i i don't think it's going to be used in a way that significantly uh enhances their wealth creation potential it's what it's going to used is to enhance their ability to control their citizenry and i i'm really worried that the us is looking um at technologies like cbdc's and saying should we do this i think absolutely not we should be saying cbdc's the thing the f- that is the furthest from what we should be doing um so i'm skeptical uh that you can fix the problems the economic problems of uh marxism or communism um with with artificial intelligence but you can do certain other things which are very very creepy and that we should hope don't happen in the west absolutely and it was so i asked newt uh how do you pronounce his last name phil i can i always butcher it savenholm right svanholm svanholm thank you i asked newt the same question he gave me the same answer so love having bitcoiners on the show uh but anyways phil it's time for the daily meme review the Daily Meme Review is brought to you by Citadel 21. It's the best Bitcoin cultural zine. It's stories, comicals, articles by actual Bitcoiners. And it's scarce because there's only a thousand copies made per volume. Get your print of Citadel 21 today. Oh, wow. Look, the first meme is by Melton. That's who, who put this in the group. Wow. You guys have to do better. Okay, anyways. Yeah. What is this? Anyways, uh, my portfolio is down 50%. Crypto class of 2021. Crypto class of... No, Bitcoin class. No, this is an automatic fail. That's an F. Yeah. You guys got to do better. Okay, next one. Um, Kenneth Dredd, ETH maxis, Bitcoin maxis. (laughs) Back to work. Those burgers aren't going to cook themselves. (laughs) Shift manager. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty clever. (laughs) It's hilarious. All right, next one's by a fellow pleb. Hong Kogan, not shitcoins, just Bitcoin. Seller asking price. 50 million sats. Newly listed January That's 1st, it? 20. Yeah, I mean, very <laughs> ambitious to hit that by 2030, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, next one is by a fellow pleb. And this is Diamond Handed Hodler. You are fine once you understand. And then Bitcoin vets during a 50% correction. <laughs> All sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. Uh, this is by Swalla. He's replying to BSV just making a fool of himself again. And mental gymnastics, Craig Reich doesn't have the keys, so he cannot sign any early blocks. Therefore, he is not Satoshi. CSW is Satoshi plus the second Jesus. He is Bitcoin side courier. A hacker stole his keys with a pineapple and then the burning car. Time to sue BSV devs to fork code and steal coins. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. Man, epic, epic memes. And for that, Phil, I'm going to give it a very special score. You're never going to guess this. Some A1 steak sauce. If you have to put A1 steak sauce on your steak, it's not good steak. Phil? It's a very good point. I do have to admit, I, I like the taste of A1 of A1 sauce. Um, you know what? That Craig Wright one, though, that, that, that's hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Here we go. I am going with... This was the, the first, little, first little project I ever put together, which was two blinking LEDs with a uh, D battery. And I still have this project. Very good. All right, BJ, what would you give those memes? Oh, all of them. You want me to grade all of them together? I didn't like the first one because it wasn't. It was. It said crypto, and I don't. I don't like when people say crypto. But I liked all the other ones. I thought they were hilarious. I liked the, uh, the the Bitcoin and ETH Maxi one, and uh, going to work at McDonald's. I actually tw- tweeted the other day that even in the darkest of times, no one memes better than Bitcoin Twitter, and it's it's cool to see that. We still, you know, in this community, have humor about it. We we feel the pain, but we can still laugh about it. Absolutely. So I, I give the, I give the the group of memes of one of my books. Oh, 
Nice. That's an amazing score. Very yeah. fitting. Okay, I agree. I agree. All right, guys, we want to know, do you agree with our scores? Do you disagree? Let us know down in the comment section. And, of, and of course, make sure to subscribe to us on alternative video platforms because we do talk shit about the World Economic Forum, even though it makes us sound crazy sometimes. Like Rumble.com and our personal favorite, BitcoinTV.com. They don't censor there because it's Bitcoin TV. And make sure to join our Telegram group. Link us some better Bitcoin memes to review because they were weak sauce today. I don't know. I don't know how that first one snuck in. I think I saw it with my peripheral vision. I'm like, that's a good meme. But uh, I have to. I have to verify. Anyways, don't trust verify. Anyways, Phil, it's time for the daily news. The daily news is brought to you by CryptoCloaks.com. They make the best 3D printed Bitcoin merch, like the 3D printed Bitcoin art grenade. Opens up, you put your favorite hardware wallet in there. Or the 3D printed Honey Badger comes in three different sizes, also opens up. Anyways, you can take advantage of the link down below for 5% off anything on the store, CryptoCloaks.com. All right, so... We have a very special guest today, and we brought him on at a perfect time. We totally didn't time this. It was a coincidence. But he happened to come on when, you know, we're we're experiencing a, a, a little bit of a dip, a correction. You know, a lot of people, I see a lot of tweets saying, this is the bear market. I don't know. We don't speculate on the show. Who knows? But if you're staying humble and stacking sats, it should not be affecting you um, if you're one of those people. But, uh, but yeah, so VJ wrote. One of the best essays that became a book because of how successful it's, it was. Uh, it's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And obviously, we don't have time to go through the whole thing and ask VJ questions. But I did highlight some parts that I found fascinating. The reason I found fascinating is because they relate to... It's nice to zoom out sometimes, right? Especially when you're going through these dips. You get kind of lost and you're like, wow, I'm losing... You know, years of salary, my portfolio value. This is terrible. This is horrible. Um, but if you zoom out to the bigger picture, you should be extremely bullish, even though even during these times. And these times present an opportunity because you have Bitcoin at a discount. So, uh, and of course, VJ also predicted some things that happened. And I might add, I think they happened sooner than VJ expected. And we were on that boat as well, right? Uh, we were telling you that a public company and that a nation state was going to eventually buy Bitcoin. And it totally happened way sooner than we expected. Uh, the game theory of Bitcoin is absolutely beautiful. Anyways, let's get to it. This part of, of VJ's piece, it's called Path Dependence. Anyways, in the process of being monetized, a monetary good will soar in purchasing power. Many have commented that the increase in purchasing power of Bitcoin creates the appearance of a bubble. While the term is often used despairingly to suggest that Bitcoin is grossly overvalued, it is unintentionally apt. A, is that the correct word? Did I just use apt? That's the yes. correct word? Yeah. Yes. Nico can read. Okay. Anyways, a characteristic <laughs> that is common to all monetary goods is that their purchasing power is higher than can be justified by their use value alone. Indeed, many historical moneyed monies had no use value at all the difference between the purchasing power of a monetary good and the exchange value it could command for its inherent usefulness can be thought of as a monetary premium as a monetary good transitions through the stages of monetization listed in the section above all right collectible awesome. store value medium of exchange and those are the stages of monetization so where would you say we are now I think we are still in the earliest stage. I think we're transitioning from Bitcoin being a collectible to becoming a store of value. That's the longest transition. It takes a long time before it's widely recognized by people all around the world as being valuable and, and storing value well over time. From a historical context, how long does that take? I mean, for gold, it took thousands of years. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to take thousands of years for Bitcoin. I think that process is accelerated so much by the fact that we live in a digital world. Um, information travels now at the speed of light. Although, interestingly, even though information travels at the speed of light, understanding does not travel at the speed of light. And it takes people time to appreciate why Bitcoin is important, why it's valuable, why it's superior to its competitors like fiat money and gold. So. You know, I'd say by now a very large fraction of the world has heard about Bitcoin, but I would say still a very small fraction 
understands Bitcoin and why it's valuable. That that happens in waves, and and we've seen this happen, you know, four times now. These big cycles that Bitcoin goes through, where its price goes through the roof, and then it crashes, and and then it finds a plateau, and then it starts again. So I'm going to ask this from you know a lot of audience members' perspectives, right? And this is why so many people are attracted to shitcoins, unfortunately, because of the unit bias. Are we late to Bitcoin? No, we're very, very early to Bitcoin. And the reason that we're early to Bitcoin is you just need to look at the addressable market for Bitcoin. Bitcoin competes with other economic goods that are stores of value. And so that's government bonds, gold, real estate in a lot of places, like in Vancouver, BC, in Canada, a lot of people in China have put their wealth into houses that they keep empty because they want to have some wealth out of China in case they need to escape. So they're using real estate as a store of value. So the store of value market is at least a hundred trillion in size. Probably, in reality, it's closer to three hundred trillion. Bitcoin's market capitalization right now is maybe a little more than half a trillion. So I, I think Bitcoin could easily, you know, over the next decades. 100x you could still 100x uh, so i i think we're still very very early on in the game it's to me it feels like um the internet in in 2000 when it had been around a decade bitcoin's been around a decade people sort of realized it was important but they didn't really fully appreciate why it was important remember this is before things like google maps facebook um all the businesses that were built on um smartphones it was before smartphones but you, if you fast forward another decade by 2010, all of that stuff had emerged and it was really apparent how important the internet was. I think the same thing will be true of Bitcoin. I think if we fast forward a decade from now, or maybe a little bit more than a decade, then people are going to realize in a much more concrete way why it's important. Now people just have an inkling. This seems important, not sure why. Maybe it's, you know, back in 2000, some people were saying the internet would be no more important than the fax machine. Paul Krugman said that. Uh, and there are people saying the same thing about Bitcoin. It's just going to take time uh, for people to really appreciate why Bitcoin is valuable and how it's going to change the world economy. Absolutely. So you were reading, and I'm glad that you said 100 trillion because I actually pulled up a passage that was written by Hal Finney, and it was actually on the Bitcoin forums, right? Just to give you the exact date, this was written January 10th, 2009. This was Hal Finney talking to Satoshi. And I'm going to read you a passage, and it kind of correlates to what you were saying about the hundred trillion. Um, and that's how much that's how much wealth is that's how much wealth is stored in property. That's what you said, correct? Yeah, the store of value market. I think Hal in this quote is talking about the total global economy. And it's certainly grown since he wrote that. It's grown quite significantly. So um, I'm talking about the portion of the global economy that is the store of value market. Uh, but yeah, Hal understood this from the beginning. So he says, and I want to ask you whether you agree with this, you disagree, and what are your thoughts? He says, as an amusing thought experiment, imagine that Bitcoin is successful. And imagine, this was written in 2009. Right. Uh, so far, so many things have happened since then, and it becomes the dominant payment system in use throughout the world. Then the total value of the currency should be equal to the total value of all the wealth in the world. Current estimates of total ha world uh, worldwide household wealth that I have found range from 100 trillion to 300 trillion with 20 million coins, which we know there's less than that. Right. It's estimated that two to three uh, million coins are lost. That gives each coin a value of about 10 million dollars. That's absolutely gnarly. Um, would you agree with that? Is that too bullish for you, VJ? Well, that's exactly the bullish case for Bitcoin. And that I, I end my book with that quote, actually. Oh. That, that exact quote that you bring up from Hal Finney. I think for me, it's much the path to Bitcoin becoming a global non-sovereign, meaning not controlled by any country, a global non-sovereign store of value. That's much clearer. I can see Bitcoin becoming the same size as gold and surpassing gold. The part which is harder to see and to think about and reason about is the transition from a global non-sovereign store of value where it's overtaking gold and it's ha it has that role where everyone thinks, oh, I want to keep some, some of my savings in something the government doesn't control. I'll keep it in Bitcoin. Once Bitcoin achieves that status, 
The next transition is from there to becoming the global reserve currency, where nation states want to hold it, where you go to the grocery store and everything's priced in terms of it. That part, I think, is less clear because that's that's something that nation states are going to fight much more um, viciously because it's taking away one of the most important um, sovereign powers that any nation state has, which is control over monetary policy. So that process, I, I say in my book that I think Bitcoin will become the global monetary base in 50 years. Uh, I could see Bitcoin overtaking gold easily within the next five or 10 years. But that from that 10 years to 50 years, that that process is very unclear to me what what the, the pushback is going to look like, how it's going to play out, whether what what form of nation state attacks we're going to see. I think that is going to be when it's very interesting to, to sort of historically look at what does Bitcoin do when it's globally significant and the world's savings can easily escape to it? Do nation states fight back or do they start adopting it? And do we see this game theory where nations are like, I don't want to be last in line, so I'm going to start accumulating Bitcoin. It's not clear. And I think we need to have an open mind uh, about how this is going to play out. I, I worry sometimes that Bitcoiners think that it's inevitable. I'm not in that camp. I think there's going to be a really... Um, vicious fight that comes to Bitcoin uh, maybe five years or a decade from now when nation states say, well, this is taking away our most important power, uh, our control over monetary policy. We need to fight back. Um, So it's going to be really exciting and interesting to watch. I do have, you know, a hope that it will happen. I really hope for my kids' future and, and the future of everyone that we get onto a new money that is so much less corruptible uh, and and doesn't give power to any particular interest group or any particular nation uh, and that we get back to a world which is fair and we're all on a level playing ground and we're all just trying to stack sats as hard as we can. Absolutely, Ben. Amen to that. So, Vijay, you were talking about, you know, the entrance of nation states in, in, in your book and you you said... I'm pretty sure you said that you weren't expecting it to the next cycle. Did it surprise you that it came so soon? Because it surprised the hell out of Phil and I. Because we were we were on the same boat. We were we were saying this when we started the show about a year and a half, two years ago. We were like, yeah, it's gonna come next cycle. We're pretty sure. It caught us completely off guard when Naim Bukele did that announcement at the Bitcoin conference. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm absolutely. Uh, surprised and stunned that it happened this cycle. Like you, I thought it might happen next cycle or even cycles after that. But I think it's also important to realize when you see something like this, that it may not be the beginning of a trend. It just may be an outlier where something happens a cycle earlier than it should. uh, And that what you'll see is the real trend of nations adopting it comes in the next cycle or cycles afterwards. So people might have gotten their hope up and thought, oh, we're going to see like 20 different countries uh, adopting Bitcoin in this cycle. They may be an outlier. Um, and one thing I said in in my, my book about nation states is that I thought the first nation state to adopt, start adopting Bitcoin would be a dictatorship. And, and um, El Salvador isn't really a dictatorship, but it, it does have an attribute that I think is really important, which is that the that Bukele is so popular. He is incredibly popular in his nation. So he has so much political capital that he has the ability to do something like this, which is so unexpected. And most leaders of nations don't have, like Biden in the US, he has almost no political capital. He can't push through anything. Uh, he, he can't even get members of his own party to get, legislation he wants through so that that's why i thought it would be dictatorships where you had leaders who had all the power vested in them to make an executive decision like this bukele is an outlier where he is in a democratic nation but he has enough power that he can act in a sense like a dictator and say i think this is good for the people of my nation i'm just going to do it i don't care what anyone else says i'm just going to do it um so it it completely took me by surprise, just like you guys. I think it's hopeful because I think it's going to serve as an example for nations in the next cycle where they, they say, as Bitcoin starts, you know, ramping up again, as it always does in the next cycle, they're going to say, look at El Salvador and say, oh my God, their their reserve position is worth how much now? Mm-hmm. They have accumulated all of these Bitcoins at this low price and now they're worth 
5x or 10x what they accumulated them for. And it's going to make El Salvador a powerful nation. And, and that is going to cause other nations to look at them and say, well, maybe we should do this as well. Absolutely, man. It makes me bullish hearing VJ talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> Phil, do you want one last question? Do you want to wrap it up? <laughs> I don't even have a question. I just I just wanted to say that like 10 minutes ago when he made that point about when you asked him about where we were in the cycle between, uh, you know, between collectible and store of value, I got bullish right there just by him saying, yeah, we're kind of like in between those two. I'm like, nice. We're still early. <laughs> like, you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it with this chart. One, one last thing. We'll ask Vijay, right? And this is kind of the percentage of target market, right? This is the, the full adoption curve, whatever you want to call it, right? Here are the early adopters. Here are the Bitcoin OGs, right? Here's the early majority. Here's the late majority. Here's the laggards. All right, VJ, I have my little magnifying glass, and you're going to tell me when to stop. Where are oh, we? You, you, need, you, you need to go back because we, if you own Bitcoin right now, you are an OG. I, I'll, I'll say that Pro probably world penetration of Bitcoin adoption is like 3% or 5% if you're really, really aggressive. So I, I think we're well, well still in the early adopters phase. Uh, and, and, you know, people always feel like they came late to Bitcoin because they, they buy and they see someone they know who bought earlier. But there are still so many people who have no ownership in this new monetary base. Uh, it really is. If you went and sampled the global population, it would be a very small fraction of people who own Bitcoin. So we are very, very early. And I wouldn't despair. We This is the greatest money that's ever existed. But it takes time. It, it really takes time for people to understand that, understand why. Uh, so don't despair. We, we, we've got many, many years ahead of us. And this is going to be much, much bigger than it is now. Bullish, bullish. And this is why you should stick to Bitcoin and not shitcoins. But anyways, Phil, there was an open source software release today. Why don't you tell everybody about it? Software releases. The software releases are brought to you by CypherSafe. Check them out. CypherSafe.io, the safest place to store your seed. You could store it in the Cypher grid. Comes with the punch tool, tamper-resistant wire, or the Cypher wheel. Check them out. The link is down below. All right, we've got mempool version 2.3.0 that was released. It's down below in the show notes. Guys, rain or shine, we post our shows unless we tell you different. We've got audio only. Check us out. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify and we're on Anchor. And if you want to stream us sats, we're also on Fountain FM. Awesome. Thank you, Phil. All right, guys, that was the show. Before we go, I want to give a very special shout out to VJ Boya Party and Boya Pati. And he came up with this awesome, awesome medium article that became so popular, it actually became a book. I'm going to pop up, you know, the, the front. He's, he actually gave it for the meme review. It's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And the foreword was actually written by the Chad Sailor. And definitely go check it out. We'll put the Amazon link down below. And of course, guys, if you enjoyed the show, you know what to do. Smash that like button. And of course, if you want to continue hearing the Bitcoin news from the perspective and the catastrophic fails from the central planners, definitely consider subscribing to Simply Bitcoin We'll see you tomorrow, guys, for a brand new episode. Slowly at first, and then all of a sudden.